0: Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Mori Judah. The portion that we have for this week in the Hebrew coming from Deuteronomy chapter 7, it extends through chapter 11 verse 25, is called in the Hebrew Ekev. And Ekev is the Hebrew word that is found there where it says, In my New American Standard, it says, now it shall come about. And some translations say it will shall be on the heel of. In fact, I think if you look in the JPS, it says on the heel of. Ekev could also be translated the simple word because. Um, I prefer on the heel of as opposed to the word because, because quite simply the word because in this instruction sounds a little too reminiscent of when my mother used to give me instructions. You know, you know, the conversation between a little child and a mother. You know, the child comes in and says, Well, why do I have to do this? And then the mother just simply says, Because. Uh, that's never been quite a satisfactory answer for a kid. And if God were to just stand up and say, Well, you should obey, and then you were to ask the question, Well why? And if he were to just say, Well because, uh, I doubt that you Uh, would accept that as much of an explanation as to why we should obey the Lord. But the truth of the matter is the nature of this particular portion is a little bit like that because it repeats several times for us. We should love the Lord, we should obey the Lord, and we should hold fast to the Lord. And part of here, part of this discussion is Moses uh, giving a foretaste and basically saying you should do it because things; these good things will happen. But also he goes into the reasons you should do it because you've already tried doing it your way and you fouled it up and it didn't work. So part of this instruction uh, being the words, Deuteronomy, Devarim, the words of the instruction is Moses is going to review for us uh, why uh, we should obey the Lord. Follow along with me now from uh, verse 12, let me read just a portion of Deuteronomy chapter 7 as he begins to speak, and he speaks to the future uh, for us. Then it shall come about, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you his covenant and his loving kindness, which he swore to your forefathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock in the land which he swore to your forefathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples, and there shall be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. And the Lord will remove from you all sickness. And he will not put not put on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt, which you have known. But he will lay them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples whom the Lord your God will deliver to you. Your eyes shall not have pity on them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? And you shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials which your eyes saw, and the signs and the wonders and the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. And then he goes into a little bit of an explanation as to how he intends to drive out the Canaanites and those that are in the land because... In this particular day, the children of Israel were asking that question, just exactly how will the Lord get them out of there? And he goes into the analogy of speaking of how he will send hornets in after them uh, to drive them out. I don't know if you've ever really seen a hornet before, the The insect, the hornet. Um, we have some of them here in Oklahoma. They'll appear every once in a while. When you see one hornet... Um, you will then understand why that's such a good picture of how the Lord used that particular insect to explain how he would drive them out. A hornet is really about that big. I mean it's a great big thing. It's bigger than a wasp and a yellow and so forth. You know the katy digs, the big bug that scratches its wings and makes all the racket sounds like a lawnmower in your backyard. Well, hornets harvest katy digs. I mean, they're the bug that goes and gets the big bugs uh, and brings them back. And if you ever see one uh, carrying one of those things back, it looks like a small bird coming toward you. There's enough mass. So whenever I read this prophecy where Moses said that God would send the hornets and he would drive them out, I, if I knew a bunch of hornets were coming, it would drive me out uh, if if you've actually seen those. So it's a very good word picture of that. Now, as I said, this particular Passage here, because on the heel of um, it sounds pretty pretty standard, in other words, these are not particularly new words that Moses is giving to us these These are things that we pretty much already surmised, in other words, the question might be really asking well what what 's the point here, Moses? We kind of already understand that, but I wouldn't want you to gloss over this. I would want you to concentrate on particular things that he brings out for us. As he goes through, and I want you to take note of certain things that God has promised you, you and I. If we will keep, listen and keep Torah. If we will listen and keep this basic instruction... There are five particular things that the Lord says that he's going to do. One, he says, God will keep his covenant and loving kindness toward us. And the word keep there, uh, I want to really kind of home in on this because I want you to walk away knowing which passage of Scripture has God really given you this promise. Sometimes we just gloss over some of this and we say it, but but you really need to be able to... Take stock of what the Lord has said here. Hold to it. Hold the Lord to it because the Lord has promised the following. He has said that he will keep the covenant for you. Now, most of our teaching that has been at least my teaching when I was involved with new covenant churches was most people taught the idea that covenants and agreements with God were conditional. By that I mean, you know, God says he'll do his part, you have to do your part. And it almost sounds like the same thing here tonight. If you will listen and keep the Torah, then I will do this. However, there's a little twist here about what the Lord says. The Lord says that he's not going to keep his side of the covenant. The Lord says he's going to keep the whole covenant He's going to keep the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of which that's the same covenant we have because we're their descendants. It says that God is going to keep the covenant. And by that it means I'm going to keep both ends. I'm going to keep my part that I said to him, and I'm also going to keep the other part that Abraham was to keep and his descendants were to keep. I'm going to keep it. He's going to keep the whole covenant for us. Now, sometimes in our faith, every once in a while, we'll get a little doubt. We'll get a little question. We'll say, well, you know, uh, God, I haven't really been very good. I've not kept up my end of the bargain. There's no reason for you to love me. There's no reason for you to continue to do good to me. Because the fact is, I'm I'm finally coming to the realization I've wasted most of my life. And I've been misbehaving. And I'm not doing the right thing. And and uh, you know, Lord, that I'm not doing doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So maybe the covenant is conditional. Only this verse clearly says it's not. This verse says that what God is going to do is going to keep both ends of the covenant. Going to keep your end, his end. Now, how does he keep your end? Because the covenant basically says this, if you sin, you die. So how does he keep your end of the covenant? Well, in fact, as New Covenant believers, we believe that he already has paid the price for us. He did keep the covenant for us. And it wasn't us who died, but God sent his son to die in our stead. And he still kept our end of the bargain. He still kept our part of the covenant. And that was the promise. And there's a promise about the Messiah right in there to us. If we'll listen and keep Torah, we'll learn the position we really are in with the Lord. We will find out, not only does he keep his end of the bargain, he kept our end of the bargain too. And instead of being discouraged and going off and saying, oh, woe is us, we're undone, we will suddenly realize, hey, you know, I already am forgiven. I already am in good stead with the Lord. All I need to do is get up and start walking in it. I'm already there with him. He's already done it for me. And that's what it says, and loving kindness toward us. Uh, The ancient word for loving kindness that could be more translated in our more modern English would be either the word mercy or grace. Loving kindness is both mercy and grace. It says that he keeps the mercy for us. He keeps the grace for us. We don't lose it. He's the one who has them. He's the one who's keeping them for us. It's like it's like my son tonight. I had my keys, and I don't like to bring my keys up and keep them in my pocket when I'm talking. If I do, uh, I sit up here and rattle my keys. So what I've done is I've given them to my son to hold them and keep them for me. I know they're safe. And God, in a sense, has taken and he's keeping for us his mercy and His grace for us. The one, the, the mercy and grace we need desperately that goes with this covenant. Therefore, we know it's under safeguarding and being kept by God for us. That provision of mercy and grace that we need. We've not lost it. This is the promise that God is giving to us. If we will listen and keep the Torah... He will keep both ends of the bargain with us. He will also keep the mercy and the grace for us. It'll be there, ready for us. We don't have to have it and then lose it along the way. He's the keeper of those things for us. Then he goes in and he says a very positive statement to us. One of which is that we don't seldom see in Scripture, but in this place. And it just simply says, God will love you. He will bless you. He will multiply you. You know, we ought, to, we ought to really remember those words. And if it's a promise of God, God keeps his promises. It says he will do it. It's only if you'll listen and keep Torah will you finally come to terms with and suddenly realize he really does love me. Then you'll recognize he really does. You'll recognize he really is blessing you you'll recognize that he's multiplied you. One of the things that was particularly uh, difficult in my upbringing was watching uh, my earthly father struggle with one particular concept. And that was that he strove um, and worked very hard trying to be a success. I always share with people when I talk about my father, my earthly father, that sometimes he, uh, the, the very thing that he wanted to be successful and he wasn't, but the thing that he really was successful in, he didn't realize. The fact of the matter is he raised up four pretty good kids who went on to be very successful. That He was very successful in that, only that wasn't what he was striving to try to do. And I think that sometimes spiritually... Some of us, because we're not aware of what God's really doing with our life, the fact that he really did promise to love us and to bless us and to multiply us, in many ways, we we get it, but we don't recognize it. We don't see what God really has been doing for us. I think that if you get into Torah, if you listen keep Torah, you'll begin to see it. You'll begin to realize how much God really does love you. You'll begin to see the blessings that God really has been giving you all along. And you'll see how God has been multiplying you, whether you realized it or not, that he really does keep his promises in that regard. Sometimes when I'm counseling with people, I have to sit down and say this overtly to them directly. You do know God does love you. Sometimes we have to be reminded, you know, things, the way things are going on, we sometimes we get the idea that God forgot us. You know, God's real busy running the universe. You know, I'm a bumpkin. I'm down here in the world. I've been, you know, trudging along, not doing so good. And all of a sudden I think, well, God's not interested in me. I have news for you. God is very interested in you, whether you're paying attention or not. But if you'll listen and keep Torah, you'll begin to learn and see the evidence of how he is involved. And I submit to you that if you'll see that, if you'll recognize what God is already doing in your life, it will be better. It'll make you more aware of your life. You'll get more out of it. You'll, you'll get the blessing even better. You'll multiply even more in the very things that you're interested in doing. It says you will be blessed above all peoples. There's a whole series of stories and examples I could give to you, but I would just give you one simple one. Have you ever seen a story or a scenario where you have one son who is quiet and uh, gets married, he gets a job, he's very reasonable and appropriate in his behavior, he raises his children, uh, but then a, a brother, another son, who goes out and is trying to be uh, get rich quick and do everything that he possibly can to be a success, and and uh, it seems like the other son gets all the attention because he's a squeaky wheel. And and uh, as far as the whole family goes, a lot of energy is put into the squeaky wheel son. But the faithful son sits back and he just plugs along day after day, year after year, raising his family and so forth. But And, and so all the attention is kind of over on the squeaky wheel who's trying to be a success and has a multitude of failures and so forth. And in the end, in the end, here's the faithful son who has a home, who has children that are raised up, who bless him, and the other one is still trying to get started. You know, almost the story of the ant and the grasshopper, so to speak. Well, we know that the real blessings, the real blessings from God, come from walking humbly before the Lord, loving kindness, and doing justice, doing the right thing. And that the slow pace sometimes of the righteous, while it doesn 't grab the headlines you know in in the daily papers, in the end they get the blessing. Yeshua was trying to say this when he said, "The meek will inherit the earth in the end, who wins in the end, who wins those that were faithful, those that walked with the lord and that 's what he 's saying here when it 's all said and done you will be blessed above all the peoples. If you'll stick with me, if you'll listen to me and follow what the Lord says, in the end, you'll be the blessed of all the peoples. Other people may have a little fame, a little gain along the way, but in the end, you'll have a clear testimony that the Lord was with you and that you came through in the end. Then he says the removal of all sickness. This is a very fascinating verse for me, particularly amongst my um, some of my more charismatic brethren. In the charismatic uh, movement, one of the things that's really stressed is about healing. And I do believe in healing. I believe in supernatural healing that comes by the Spirit of God. There is a gift of healing. I believe that those things do happen. But one of the things that I also recognize about the healing and about sickness that the Lord teaches us is, is that if you want to be healthy, long-term healthy, obey the Lord. You are really taking a roulette wheel roll of chance, trying to live in this world not follow the commandments of God concerning your diet, and you're taking your chances with the world. In just our generation, the scientific community has learned repeatedly, over and over again, that polluted waters, the wrong kinds of foods that they call food, they're not actually food, but the wrong kinds of things eaten, the chemicals that have been used in various places, substances that have been used in building materials and in treating of bugs and insects, and even to the extent of some medicines, that in the end, they're not a substitute for having eaten the right thing or to have abstained from things that are unclean. It turns out now we just have a mass of chronic diseases And some of the pollutants that we now have in the world are getting to the point where cause and effect is very clear. In other words, if you participate in these things, the effect will be these things. And there's a direct connection been made in this world. It's really getting kind of, quite honestly, a little bit scary in the world to me. Because now, of course, the scientific community is messing with all manner of things They're going to change the very nature of how we live. Uh, The most recent controversy this week in the news, I don't know if you have been watching the news, that the decision that President Bush had to make with regard to what's called stem cell research, where they're taking um, this tissue, this early tissue that would be in a baby's life, such as an embryo or an aborted fetus, tissue that normally in the human development process could be turned into literally any tissue for any organ. The scientific community wants to harvest those pieces of tissue that can be grown into literally any tissue, and they want to use it to inject into people who have an absence of tissue, such as a spinal cord or a pancreas or a heart and inject them into you and then those tissue will grow into whatever it is organ that you needed to have done. And they're trying to find a way to to do that. Right along with, on the other hand with it, they want to clone people. They figured out a way to um, take some of the DNA of a person and put it into the egg of a woman and plant the egg and the woman will give birth and the person who will come out at born is DNA matches the person they took the DNA from. So in effect, a baby would be born that is exactly the same person chemically and, and physically as the person that they got the blueprint from, so to speak. You know, we have finally come to the point where we are dinking around with the things that God used to create us. Only we, uh, we're not God. We don't know what the consequences are of some of this stuff. We truly have the ability to create some monstrous things and just do it unknowingly. I've mentioned to you, I think, before, but in other audiences I definitely have, I saw a frightening report on uh, one of the public broadcasting sessions about a chemical company called Monsanto. Maybe you've heard of this company before. And in this particular report they had a spokesman for that chemical company and they were showing the film of the Monsanto planted up on top of it. They had these greenhouses. Well, I'm into growing things in greenhouses. So that program kind of intrigued me there for a moment and I continued to watch. But what really frightened me was that this man began to announce how that the Monsanto chemical company was going in and genetically altering the GNA structure, the DNA structure, genetically redesigning the plant. Well, I can understand maybe In fact, they were describing how they were taking something from a fish and they were putting it, injecting it into a plant so the plant would grow with something that comes from a fish and as a result, uh, it was insect resistant. Insects wouldn't eat this particular plant because it had this ingredient in it. And they're looking at it from the standpoint of increasing the yields, causing the plants to be more... Heat resistant or causing them to be more bountiful or whatever. That sounds like a very noble thing, but the thing that really frightened me was that they said they were altering 500 plants, 500 different plants a week. I mean, we're not talking about one or two plants here. They're talking about they're going through every plant that grows on the planet. They're dinking with and messing with that stuff. Now, for those who are scientifically oriented, don't think that I'm standing up here taking issue and speaking flat out against science. I'm a scientific person. I come from a scientific background. But I also recognize there's something true about mankind when it comes to science. The science that we are now... Uh, into in the world, is only recent. We've only recently learned this science. We've only learned this in the last generation. And some of this science in less than the last five years, we don't really have a lot of experience with this yet. And I would remind everybody that the great scientific community, you know, of which we are a part of, just a few hundred years ago thought the earth was flat. They thought it was flat that the scientific community a few hundred years ago thought the entire universe revolved around us. Just some 55 or so years ago, the scientific community said the reason why you young ladies like to leave the house, not bear children, stand in front of a hot stove and cook all day and want to go out and work for a living is because you were too strictly potty trained by your mother. They thought that was the reason you people go out, and by the way, these were women psychiatrists that were concluding this. Um, the scientific community a hundred years ago, if you weren't feeling so good, they diagnosed you with a, co- a case of humors and they would bleed you so that they could get the humors out of you and they would just take some blood away from you. Get the bad blood out was the diagnosis. Now, Um, they're dinking with things that they really don't know what the consequences are. They have no idea what, if they take one of these things, they go out and they introduce it into the rest of the world, what it might really do in the second, third, or fourth generation of whatever it's going to do. They think they know what it will do the first time around. And it's a little bit like, you know, we've found a new discovery... A wine. Well, the first glass is fine. The second glass is feeling even better. The third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh glass, and you're drunk. You are out of your mind. And you're endangering yourself and other people potentially around you. And it's a little bit like a drunkenness that is going on with regard to this business. Sickness. Sickness is something that the world is not curing it is something that we're actually increasing. The number of new diseases coming into the world is multiplied. The kinds of epidemics that they say that we could be having soon would be devastating. This is with all our high technology. In fact, in the military components, there are elements in which that they're actually designing um, uh, biological weapons that will make you sick and kill a whole bunch of people. They're called biological warfare. So they're using that science for the purpose to see if we can wipe everybody else out. It's almost like, you know, we've eaten of a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For every gain that we get, we get evil as well as good. Only how do you control the evil part? And listening to secular scientific community pledge to us, oh, we'll only do the good part, we won't do the bad part. I mean, if you believe that, well, I've got some great land down in Florida, i want to sell you. Or i got a bridge in Brooklyn I'd like to talk to you about. I mean, if you really believe that. Not too long ago, I was hearing that the U.S. was absolutely going to take the last position. There would be no cloning of humans, except last week, they're going to do it just off the coast on a ship for 200 people. They're going to try to build 200 cloned humans. And just proud as can be announcing it. What kind of a world will we have then with that? In any case, the Lord says that he'll remove all sickness from us. You know what the Torah actually says about crossbreeding? It says you won't do it. Don't do it. Don't cross-pollinate even plants. Don't get into animal husbandry and cause, you know, different species. I mean, you just let them do their natural thing. Let them do it the way I designed it. Don't, don't go messing with that stuff. Now, if the Torah tells us not to cross pollinate plants and tells us not to cross breed animals, what do you think he has to say about genetic engineering? This is not good. Because he tells us very clearly, if you keep these things, this is what will happen. The converse is true. If you disobey these things, instead of being free from all sickness, you will produce it more. You'll produce it even more. One of my favorite passages is when the Messiah was teaching one day, and they brought a man in that was in a bed. He was chronically ill, and they lured him down through the roof. He didn't just walk in with the assembly. They actually tore the roof out of this house and they lowered the bed down with this chronically sick man because all the people were there nobody would let him in because they were all listening to his teaching. And as they lowered him down, the Messiah healed the man. And he said to him, your sins are forgiven you. And the guy got, got up out of the bed. Well, it was great that they see a miracle, but the thing that got the people was they said, what do you mean your sins are forgiven you? I mean, it's one thing to say, "Well, you're healed," but he said, "Your sins are forgiven you," and that's how the guy got healthy. And so they challenged him on that. He said, "Well, what's the difference?" He said, "If I say your sins are forgiven you, or if I say you healed, isn't isn't that what you wanted him to get up out of the bed?" Only they were intrigued at how could there be sins involved? How could how could he be forgiving sin? You know what I think his sin was that he had to be forgiven of, probably been eating the wrong things all of his life. Probably not obeying the Lord, and he contracted some kind of chronic disease. The opposite of this. And so to cure the man, what he had to do was forgive him of his sins. You know, to clear the slate, let him get back to normal, so to speak. My charismatic brethren are very interested in healing people, praise God. How about we live in a place where we don't have disease at all if we just follow the commandments of the Lord? Then you wouldn't have to heal anybody. It's a little bit like the expression some people are talking about in the church today, we need revival. You know, when we were at the Psalms 150 night, we had the gentleman come by who was talking about having revival. You know what revival means? It means you're dead to begin with. If you have to be revived, it means you're already dead. Then you get revived. And if the church is going around saying, boy, we need revival, then the church is testifying against itself and saying, we're dead. Are we? Are we dead? Or is it maybe we just don't recognize that we're alive? And we just, we, we keep having all kinds of trouble and trauma. We're not getting the blessing. We have sickness. We have other problems. Maybe, maybe that's what's really wrong with us. Because we just won't listen and we won't keep God's instruction. We keep trying to do it our own way and it won't work. So we think we need to be revived. Well, in some cases, I think some brethren do need to be revived. But the bottom line is it, the, 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 what we should be getting back to is this. I mean, we want the Lord to keep his covenant and show us grace and mercy. We want God to love us, bless us, multiply us. And we want to be blessed of all the peoples. Sounds like we're in a full gospel, charismatic, Pentecostal, fundamentalist assembly right now. And yes, oh yes, we want to have all sickness removed from us. Praise God, that's what they preach and so forth. Look at the first line though. If we'll listen and keep Torah. Ooh, well, that's the part we don't want to do. I mean, we want all those things, but we don't want to do that other part. We don't want to receive that other instruction. But it's very clear the promise is in here for us to have. It's very clear that it's been planned for us. Finally, deliverance from our enemies. Now, the deliverance from our enemies doesn't mean that doesn't mean that enemies may not come into your life and approach you. What this is talking about is that God will get up from your house and go fight your enemies. He'll go take care of your enemies. Because if you don't have God there to go take care of your enemies, then you're going to have to face it. And a lot of people are having to face their own enemies. And some of their enemies aren't necessarily people who come with arms against them. Sometimes they're spiritual. In fact, they're spirits that come to fight. Who better than to have the Lord go and fight some of these spirits that are coming against you? Who better than him? I mean, are you equipped to go fight spirits and spiritual things that are coming against you? How about if somebody pronounces a curse against you? What do you have in your weapons arsenal to take care of that? Stand up defiantly and say, oh, won't have any effect on me. Or to ignore it and have the curse just chase you down. No, you want God who's on duty, paying attention to you, who's promised to deliver you from all your enemies. That's what you really want. You want to be able to call upon the Lord and say, "Lord, uh, the enemy comes against me. Remember, you said the battle is yours. Go get him. Deliver me from my enemies." One of the things that we have taught in preparation, and one of the things that I will emphasize again, should the day come that we are faced in the great tribulation and we have to get up and we have to leave our homes and we have to go out into the camp of our brethren the one thing that the Torah commands all of the men, it's a Torah commandment, that the men shall all bring a shovel for their family. A shovel. This is the first line of defense for the camp, the Scripture says. A shovel so that you'll keep the camp clean, so that you'll dig a latrine out away from the camp. Why? Because the Scripture says that you and I have the Lord walking in the camp with us amongst us. Because we're the people of God, it says God goes out and joins us in the camp. That when we go out to seek refuge in the Lord, that when we join together, the Lord walks through the camp with us. He walks in between the tents and the huts and the booths and the trailers. and so He walks the campground, it says. And the scripture says that if he sees some indiscreet thing, some uncleanliness there in the camp, that he won't be hanging around the camp. And the reason you want him hanging around the camp is because the scripture says very clearly so that when your enemy approaches the camp, that the Lord will get up from your camp and he will go out to face the enemy and he will take on the enemy. But if you have an indiscreet camp that you've not kept it clean, then the Lord won't be in that camp. He will have been separate from the camp. And when your enemies come, it'll just be you and them. So the first line of defense, the first line of defense is use God's rules about how you live together with one another. And in fact, you could summarize the whole Torah that way. The Torah is a set of instructions of how like-minded brethren should live together in a community of faith, how we should behave with one another. How we should regard what is clean and unclean, what is proper, what is not proper, amongst a community of believers. You know what the New Testament really teaches us as compared to the Torah? It really teaches us how to live with ourselves. I mean, the Lord really came to tell us how to deal with us, our hearts, our souls, our, our, our inner person, how to be at peace in here. But Torah really tells us how to be at peace with one another as a community. Now, we all know that we have the Lord with us in our hearts to encourage us and give us the peace that we need inside. But I'd like to have the Lord present in the camp with the rest of you, too. And I'd like that when there's something happens to all of us together, I'd like the Lord to be standing up just like he did with Israel against Egypt and against the enemies that came against him. I'd like to see that God, you know, open the Red Sea. I'd like to see that God present in the camp. Should I have to go into that scenario? Which, by the way, brethren, I believe that uh, that is our future. Now, to do that, to have him present in the camp, when we have to follow his instructions. Now, Moses puts these all in the context of, this is what will happen to you. This is, you want to obey because, and it will come on the heels of this. In other words, I like that expression, on the heels of, because it's like, He's running right after you. If, you if, the, if the guy is right on your heels, it means he's right behind you. And these things are right behind the person who will listen and keep Torah. They're right there. And you don't have to turn around and search very hard to find these things if you're listening and keeping Torah. And so Moses reviews them for us again. It's not new information, it's been taught in many other places, but, but he's reminding us again by the way of words in the book of Devarim, this is what it's all about, this is what we're doing. Moses now begins to summarize and he says, well, what is this whole process that we've been in? And this is a great message to me for the people that were in the wilderness, but I think it also is a great explanation for all of us for our lifetime. Maybe you've heard me make this expression before. If you're going to be anybody in the Lord, if you're going to be anybody in the Lord, you're going to have to go to the wilderness. I mean, you can look back in the scripture and you find that to be true. Anybody that is anybody in the Lord that's written for us in the scripture spends some time in the wilderness. Yeshua, before he began his ministry, he was in the wilderness. Children of Israel, they were in the wilderness. David, he had to go to the wilderness, hide in the wilderness from Saul. Everybody spends some time in the wilderness, in a lonely place, not a well-populated place, not a real comfortable place. And I would imagine that if you look back in your life, there's been moments and times in your life that you said, you know, I was in the wilderness there. And what God was doing to me is the same thing that he was doing to the children of Israel. Moses recounts for us what he says here. Let me read from Deuteronomy 8. Uh, The first three verses, all the commandments that I am commanding you today, you should be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. And you should remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you be hungry. And he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. When you go into the wilderness of the Lord, you go in to be humbled, to be tested, to find out what's really in your heart. That's what the wilderness experience is about. It's not particularly pleasant or enjoyable. It's really one of those experiences that after it's over with, well, you say, well, it was good. But while you're in it, there's nothing good about it. When you're in the midst of the trauma and the difficulty that you may be facing in your life, you'll be like most people. You'll commiserate, you'll complain, you'll fret, you'll worry, you'll wonder which end is up. And the reason I want to encourage you with this passage, because there's one thing that will help every person get through the wilderness, particularly in those situations, is if you can just get a little inkling of understanding why, what's the purpose of this. And if you can see the purpose for you going through this, the, the reason you're having the difficulty, the, the reason this trauma is happening to you is that God is really intending to do something good to you. It lightens the load and it helps you to get through it. And generally speaking, this has certainly been my testimony, about the time that I suddenly realize why and what it is that God is trying to teach me, you're out of it. You're out of the wilderness. You've crossed over. You're into a place of refreshment and good. Because you've learned the lesson. You've endured it. I'll never forget one particular morning many, many years ago in which that the Lord had put me through a whole series of trials and times. And for those of you who may have heard this before in the past I apologize but allow me to share my testimony a bit more with those who haven't. There was a time in my life in which that there was no question in my mind that the Lord put me in a state of depression. In fact, I even know the day it started. I was having a conversation with the Lord. I remember emphatically looking down of my window and, and looking down into where the light was streaming through the shadows and there was shadows and bright light of a morning light and looking down through some eucalyptus trees and, and, and hearing the voice of the Lord say something to me like, Monty, I'm going to do something different now. And suddenly sensing at that moment that some dramatic things were going to change. And, and they did literally that day. And none of them were good. None were good. In the course of the events that followed, not only did I go into emotional depression, things, just nothing worked right. I mean, nothing went right. Even happy things weren't happy. On top of that, I was crippled. Had a leg, had a knee that went out. I was crippled for a year. Couldn't walk for a year. Couldn't straighten my leg. Couldn't put pressure on the leg. It hurt. Couldn't walk. Depressed. Other difficulties, other, other, other things. This went on for Guatemala. a while. matter of fact, it went on for a long time. And the whole time that it was going on, it was like, I was, it, this is unreal, this, this isn't right, uh, it, it, it doesn't make sense. I had this sense of that God was doing something, but it was like, okay, well, God, do, do whatever it is you're doing, but I, I don't understand it. Necessarily, and it just was getting harder and harder and more and more difficult. In fact, it came down to the moment when I would wake up in the morning and I had slept all night. I would wake up in the morning and I mean everything hurt. I mean everything hurt. It was like I was exhausted. It was like there was had been no sleep. I know i had slept, but it was like I was completely drained of any strength. In fact, the way I would get out of bed, I'd develop this routine. I would kind of rock myself ever so gently and allow my legs to get off the edge of the bed. And then I would time it so that the gravity pulling my legs down would raise up. I would kind of rock up into a sitting position. That's how I would get out of bed. Only I didn't actually get out of bed. I would have to sit there for several more minutes just to get the strength to stand and then I would go into the bathroom. It, it would I was functioning about two hours later. It would take me two hours to be able to get up. Can you imagine trying to go to work on a daily basis with this? It was hard. It was miserable. I was very unhappy. I didn't like it. It hurt all the time. Miserable on my wife, family. Miserable. Wilderness. You know what the definition of a wilderness experience is? What a wilderness, a real wilderness is? It's when you can take a whole bucket of water and immediately drop it, turn it upside down on the ground. And if you can't, immediately the ground sucks the water up when you cannot go down and capture enough water on the surface of the ground to even get a sip. I mean, if the ground is that barren where you pour a bucket of water out and the water just goes and you can't even get enough off the ground to get a sip, that's the wilderness. Because the wilderness just sucks the life out of you. I mean, it just drains you. This one particular morning, as my feet came off the bed and I rocked into a sitting position and it hurt, I remember I cried out, spiritually cried out to the Lord. And I said, Lord, what? What is the what is the purpose of this? What is the task? Let's learn it. I'm tired of this lesson. Let, I'm over enough already. And the Lord had another one of those conversations with me, just like before. I mean, his voice was as clear as could be to my spirit, and he spoke to me, but he wasn't very empathetic. I mean, I would have thought he'd been real nice to me, but he was kind of nice to me. But he wasn't. You know, the the tone of his words didn't seem so nice because. He said this to me. He said, oh, Monty, if you weary with the footman, what will you do with the horseman? And in that instant, I suddenly realized why all this had been going on. He was training me and teaching me so I would know how you brethren will feel in the Great Tribulation. How the Great Tribulation will just suck the life out of you. It'll exhaust you. It'll oppress you. It'll discourage you. You will just have the hope drained from you by bucketfuls. Everything will hurt. Nothing will be comfortable. Everything will be a struggle. There'll be no pleasure whatsoever. And he said, what you've been going through here, crippled, depressed, hurting. That's like running against a footman. Wait till you see the guys on horses coming. Wait do you have to keep up with them. And the Lord showed me there was a great purpose. You know what happened to me? It's my clear testimony. I literally got the strength to stand for that moment. And my depression of all those years was gone that day. The Lord healed my leg. I had the necessary surgery on it. My leg works better now than it ever did. All of it was a lesson. All of it was a wilderness experience that he might humble me that he might test me, that he might find out what's really down in my heart. Will I really cry out? Will I really turn to the Lord? Or will I just commiserate myself into nothing? And so what I have learned to encourage other brethren with, get fed up with whatever it is that's bugging you. Get fed up with it. Something. Get something down inside you to say, enough already. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of being in this position of need and hurt and pain and so forth. So what's the lesson, Lord? What are you trying to teach me? Prove to me. I want to learn it. Let's get this one over with. Let's get on to the next lesson. And the lessons usually of all the wilderness experiences all have one basic lesson. You do not live by bread alone. You don't live by your means. Sure, there's bread in your life. And yes, you need bread. But you also live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's where life is at. These other things will cause your mortal frame to exist. But if you want to be alive, if you want to live, you want to have joy, you want to have a life, then you better find the words of God. You better come to terms with His promises that He's given to you and accept them and walk in them and be in parallel, in path with God. Walk uprightly. Stay on the path with Him. It's a lot easier. You want to go your own way? You'll hurt. You'll suffer. And so Moses is reminding Israel, guys, look at at the experience we're in. He suffered you to be hungry. Remember? You were thirsty, remember? But you also got water from Him, right? You got fed, right? Right? What did you learn? The Messiah goes even further with this lesson. He said, look back and examine what bread did they eat? When they got hungry, what bread did they eat? Bread they made? This was a very unique bread. This was a bread of heaven. This is a bread that wasn't given by Moses. This is a bread that was given by God. They ate that bread. We have the same bread. Now, it's a very special name bread. We call it manna. Because the average man, when he sees it, he says, what is it? What's that? What, what What's that stuff? And that's the way most people are when they deal with that God says that he offers himself to you as a nourishment a bread that you'll eat of him, you'll never be hungry again. Most men usually go, what's that? I mean, what can that be? Who could that be? I mean, what, what, what are you talking about? There is no such thing. And that's the way most men regard the work of the Messiah. But the Messiah himself said that he was that bread. He was the bread that came from heaven that's come down that if we'll eat of him, we'll never be hungry again. And he likened himself to this bread in the wilderness. It's like that bread. Moses didn't give them that bread. They didn't go out and make that bread. They had bread to eat. But where did they get the bread? And God was trying to teach him, you don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Have we learned that lesson? Have we learned that the real bread, the real manna that comes from heaven is in the Messiah, Yeshua? Do we eat of that bread so that we'll not be hungry? So we'll be satisfied? Well, it's a great question to ask ourselves. Now, while we're living in this time where it's pleasant and we have rainbow and wonder bread to go along with, the bread from heaven, what are we going to do when there is no rainbow bread or wonder bread and there's no store with it and there's no grain to grind and no mill to make flour and no bakery to bake bread? Then what bread were you planning on eating? There is a bread that we've always had available to us, but have we learned to eat of it? Do we know where to get it? You know, the bread, the real bread that comes from heaven, the real hidden manna, And by the way, Revelation 2 talks about that the overcomers in the Great Tribulation will have access to hidden manna. They'll have that same bread again. Moses is recounting these things, trying to lock into our thinking that we need to consider and weigh our actions. That we need to love the Lord. We need to obey the Lord. We need to hold fast to him. Because there's definite reasons to do so. Not only things for the future, but the things that are happening in our present life. And then he reverts back to things of the past. We've gone from the future to the present to the past. And he reviews a little of Israel's past. Let's move to the next slide, please. And what he forms for us is what we call a rebuke about self-righteousness. In chapter 9, he begins with the words, hear, O Israel. Well, that's a great passage because just last week we heard that hear, O Israel, is Shema, is, is, a, is a great instruction that's being given to us. It's, we're supposed to be witnesses of God as a result of saying, Shema, Yisrael. And again, he says, Shema, Yisrael. Hear, O Israel. Look at verse 4 of chapter 9. Do not say in your heart... When the Lord your God has driven them out, the enemies before you. Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me to possess this land. You know what? We have a lot of brethren today... Who are at the point in their spiritual life, and I'm not suggesting they're of this assembly, but brethren that are in our, that, that we are in fellowship with as a whole. And some people think that in their spiritual walk, we've got God figured out, we've got, you know, got Him in a nice little box one day a week, we, and we appeal to Him whenever we have to go to a courtroom or whenever we have to go to, uh, the hospital. We open the box up, we ask for God's help, he comes and Well, Or or if we'd like to have a little financial prosperity, we'll, you know, tap that box every once in a while and we'll get some of God's help for that. In the meantime, we'll basically take care of ourselves and we pretty much attain. And if anybody comes and asks us if we're good people, we'll say, yes, we're good people. And we'll compare ourselves against other brethren by saying, see see, see me, I'm, I'm a good guy. The other guys over there, see those poor, those are bad guys. They're not so good. I'm the righteous, they're the unrighteous. And this is a rebuke from Moses against Israel. Because we have a new generation. At the time that Deuteronomy is written, the second generation, the one that was born in the wilderness, the one that was less than 20 years old, When they left Egypt, this is a new group. And to a certain extent, they think they've learned some of the lessons of the past. They think they've done better than the previous generation and their parents did. They're not going to reject the land of Israel. They're planning on going in. The previous generation rejected. And they're not like the other generation, you know, in the things that they did. However, Moses recounts some of this and holds it to their account. Kind Kind of interesting the way he does this. So he starts off and he says, do not say in your heart because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. He says, that's not the reason you're getting the land. You're not getting the land because of any righteousness you have. The fact of the matter is, he says, the reason why you're going to get the land is because God is driving the wickedness out of the land. The reason why he's going to take the enemies away is because God is a judge And they are wicked, and God is going to judge that wickedness. You know, when the Messiah returns, brethren, he's not returning to us because of our righteousness. The scripture is very clear. The reason why God is going to be returning is because he's fed up with the wickedness of the world, and he is going to wipe them out. I mean, he's already done this once before. He did it with the world back in the flood. So this is not a new thing for God to do. So what is our status? I mean, you know, how is it that we get delivered? Well, what we should recognize, it's not because of our righteousness. It's because God is being gracious and God's being merciful. The fact of the matter is there's not a human being alive that doesn't re- deserve the full end-time judgment of God, including the day of the Lord. There's not a city in this world that doesn't deserve it. Not a community, not a nation every one of them deserve the judgment that is being spoken of that will come at the end. So how is it that you and I get to go to the kingdom? Well, we're like Israel. Israel got to go to the kingdom. They got to go into the land, not by their righteousness. And he goes on to explain, he says, really, let's, let's take stock of who we really are. Let's, let's take a stock of who Israel really is. For example, he says, really, the truth is you're a stubborn people. You're stubborn, stiff-necked you won't do anything good until it's the absolute last thing that can be done. And then after you do it, you'll want full credit for it. You know, sometimes we do righteous deeds because we didn't have any other choices. We just accidentally stumbled into righteousness. You know, we we had to pick it up because it was in our path, and it turned out it helped somebody. You know, sometimes that's the way we are. And we, we try to lay claim to that as some kind of righteousness. It's not. Our deeds are not righteous. And then he goes on to describe just certain things in Israel's history. Read with me now as I read from chapter 9, beginning at about, uh, it actually begins in in verse 7 through 17, but I just want to select a couple of verses here. He says, verse 7, remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. In other words, Moses is basically saying to Israel, name me a day since we left Egypt. You know, 40 years ago. Name me one day in which that you, Israel, have obeyed the Lord. How about the day, you know, that you were standing at the base of uh, Mount Sinai? You know, after you'd heard the Ten Commandments God had spoken, after you'd dispatched me up the mountain to get the word and the instruction, you remember the day you made the golden calf. You couldn't make it 40 days. You couldn't wait 40 days after you'd heard the voice of God, after the fire is still burning on the mountain, still rumbling away, and you know I'm up there getting the instruction, whom you sent me up there to get. You couldn't make it 40 days before you made an idol, before Aaron actually participated with you and made it for you. So going way back, you know, this is the people you are. Stubborn. Then he goes down and he says in verse 21 that what he did was he took that that sinful thing, the calf, he says, and I took your sinful thing, the calf which you had made, burned it with fire, crushed it, grinding into very small until it was fine as dust. I threw its dust into the brook that came down to the mountain. You know, they actually drank the thing. Moses took the golden calf, crushed it, burned it with fire, turned it into gold flake and dust and threw it into the water, the brook that was coming out of the rock that they were all drinking from, threw it into that and the people drank it. Man, you would think that would be the final thing. I mean, you know, the, the, the realization that we'd sinned against the Lord, we made the calf, and we even, as our judgment, we had to drink the thing. You would think that would be it. I mean, you know, surely this would be a people who would obey the Lord. No, not true. Not in the case of Israel. Verse 22, he goes on to say, again at Taborah and at Massah and at Kibroth Hattaavah, you provoked the wrath. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and possess the land which I have given you, then you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You neither believed him nor listened to his voice. Let me review for you real quickly these other places are listed. Let's just review. Real quick. So he said, you were at Tabra. You know what we did in Tabra? You know, if you go back in the scriptures, it will tell you back there. He says, that's when we complained about the manna. You know, the manna that we were eating every day that God, we said that it didn't taste very good. We we said it was dull, it was bland. There were several different ways it could be fixed, but we didn't like any of them. And even though it was food, and we were out in the wilderness and there is no other food, we said we don't like the bread of heaven. We don't like the taste of that. That's tantamount to saying that you're not impressed with the Messiah. That's tantamount to saying, well, I understand the concept of the Messiah, but, you know, who needs the Messiah? That's pretty provoking of the Lord. And he listens Massa. Massa was the place where they complained about no water. That was the place where Moses went up and he should have spoken to the rock, but he struck the rock, and there was a big rebellion amongst all the people, and the water and everybody got in trouble there. The people got in trouble. Moses got in trouble because they said, we want water. And we're not content with waiting on the Lord. And then at Kibroth Hatabah, which was the place right after they left the mountain. The first place they camped at after they left Mount Sinai. When they thought they had had God all figured out, all the people came in and they said, We want meat. We want meat. And we got God figured out. God's supposed to provide for us. And so, we, well, we got bread, we got water, we got the tabernacle, his presence is with, we want meat. Now, mind you, when they went in and complained about that, there were flocks standing at their feet. But we want what we can get from God. We don't want to use our own. They were on the shores of the Red Sea. They could have ordered, set up fishing parties. They were just lusting. They had provision for them. They could have done certain things for themselves if they really wanted it. But they had thought they'd figured God out. We don't want to go and do the reasonable and the right thing. We want God to give it to us. And we want meat. And he has to give us what we want. So God gave them meat, all right. A whole bunch of quail. And at the moment that it touched their teeth, they died. And it's called the graves of the lust. The graves of the lustful. That's what he wrote... Hatava means the graves of the greedy. And they actually named a place where they had to bury a whole bunch of Israelites. He said, remember that? Remember that place? Remember that of your past? You know, what righteousness are you referring to that you have? What righteousness is it that got you into the promised land? Or then he finally lists off Kadesh Barnea, which is the whole issue of where they went to first and they got ready to go in the land, but they sent the spies in. And the spies came back and gave a bad report. And then everybody got afraid. Nobody wanted to believe the Lord. And they refused to go into the land, even though God says, I will go in with you. I will go in before you. I will drive out your enemies. And they refused. In fact, they started forming up bands and looking for new leaders. Somebody to lead them back to Egypt. This is, this is your past. You're the people that made the golden calf, complained about the manna, complained about the water that came from the rock, You're the people that wanted meat to eat, saw a plague, killed most of you off. You're the people that actually, a generation ago, rejected the promised land. So when you go into the land, don't any of you stand up and say, well, we're going to the land because of our righteousness. It's a wonderful lesson for us in our present time. We have no righteousness, brethren, to commend us into God's kingdom. If you just start doing a little survey on our past, every one of us, would have our golden idols, our rejection of the manna, the water, greed, and actual rejection of God's promises. Every one of us would have the testimony of the same. Moses concludes this, though, on a good note, of which uh, I'll get us to here in just a moment. It sounds like we're going downhill, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds like, oh, Monty, thanks for the great encouraging message of the story. Actually, I do want to encourage you. I want to encourage you the way that Paul deals with part of this message. If you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me show you what Paul does with this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 26, let me read there for you a bit. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. That no man should boast before God, but by his doing you are in the Messiah, Yeshua, who came to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. If we just look about our small assembly that we have seated here, there's not too many of us that are wise according to the world's standards. Not many of us sitting here are mighty. Not many of us here are noble. In fact, I would dare say, do you know of anyone in our assembly that could qualify for any of these three categories according to the world's standards? And by the way, if you were thinking that maybe I might be a partial candidate, I'm up here to testify that I'm not I'm like you. You know, God has decided to choose things that are not so wise, not so noble, not so mighty, basically to confuse the enemy. I mean, you know, so why did God choose you? Well, because uh, you, by everybody else's standards, uh, God shouldn't have chosen you. (laughs) Just to confuse the people who think they are. Wise, mighty, and noble. So God would show himself to be sovereign. And it's like Israel. Why did God choose Israel? Because Israel is mighty, great in number? No, the scripture is actually pretty clear. The reason why God chose Israel is because we're least of the peoples. Now, why did God do that? The same reason that he says, Paul says here about look at our own calling, brethren. It's to have an impact on the world. You see, the fact of the matter is everybody in the world knows what Israel has been like. From the golden idol all the way up to killing every prophet, including killing and condemning our own Messiah, and yet God still loves us, and God still intends to save us. And so when God does save us and does deliver us even from ourselves, then there's no nation in the world that can stand up, no peoples in the world, no person. In the world that can stand up and say, well, God's mercy can't extend to me. Because I can assure you, brethren, that none of you, none of the other nations have done anything like Israel has done against the Lord. The fact of the matter is that even amongst our own assembly, amongst our own people, we're full of foolishness. We're full of mistakes. But God has still used us. He's still chosen us to be an example to others, to encourage others. So that you can go to others who've been foolish and have made mistakes and you can say, look, look at me. You know, the Lord the Lord forgave me. The Lord has blessed me, done good to me. He'll do good to you. He'll love you too. So that we can have an effective witness. You won't listen to a person that was perfect, but you'll listen to somebody that's like you. And so that's the reason why God has chosen us. So that we might be used of Him to reach out to other people. The Lord gave me a vision about my life, and I think it's one that's applicable to all of us. The fact of the matter is, if you take your life and you take the weight of it as compared to what's going on in the world, your life, my life, is about the equivalent of a pebble, like a piece of sand. You can go out on the beach and find a whole bunch of us, you can go out into a rock pile and find a whole bunch of. I don't, I don't even qualify as a rock, or a piece of a rock. I, I'm I'm way down at the smaller level, you know. My life, as compared to everybody else's life that's ever been, your life, has compared to everybody, you're a pebble. I'm a pebble. And when I began my ministry, one of the things that I confessed to the Lord when I began to serve Him was I said, "God, my life is like a pebble." And I live in a sea, a sea of ideas and communication. And if I were to put the whole weight of my life, I wouldn't amount to more than a pebble splash in the sea of ideas. You ain't going to make much of a splash with your life. But you know what's interesting about a pebble splash? A pebble splash has carries a wake with it. There's a ripple, and that ripple continues to make its way out from you and keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And you know what? God can turn that wake into a tidal wave when it arrives somewhere else. And that has certainly been my discovery about my life. As a result of the little pebble splash of my life, there are other people in the world that have been affected. That wasn't me. I was just the pebble splash. But God was able to take the little wake, the little ripple from my life, and he was able to do something with somebody else. He, he changed their life. And God is able to do the same thing with your life. The actual splash of your life is not much. But what your life will be in consequence as it's added in with others and other things that God is doing with it, he can do much. It's amazing for me to go to various cities and communities when I have the opportunity to go and speak in other places and meet people. People come to me. I've never met these people before. They come to me and they say, Monty, I just wanted you to know you know, I've heard your tapes, I've heard your teaching from years back, and I wanted you to know, as a result of hearing your teaching, the Lord got a hold of my life and he turned my life around, and now I'm serving the Lord. And and by the way, here's all my brethren with me. It wasn't me. That was the Lord's doing. That was the Lord taking my life and multiplying it over and over and over again. You know, because he promised me, he said he would multiply me. He would make me more blessed than all the people's. You know what the thing that always gets me about it? The testimony that they always respond to is because, Monty, you were the example of a guy who just wanted to obey the Lord. I just wanted to commend you for your obedience to the Lord. And I'm sitting here going, boy, Lord, um, sure would be nice if you could say that about me, but I know it's not true. But at least something had an effect. You know, you took that little pebble splash in my life and you, and you, you made some changes. You know, You could do the same thing. Every one of you are a pebble splash. You know, God can multiply you way beyond you. At a minimum, you can do it through your children. Just be a pebble splash with your children. And the ripple will go through generations. The impact of your life will go through multiple generations. Just bless your children. The scripture tells us if you bless your children, it will go to, the ripple will go to a thousand generations. A thousand generations. There hasn't been a thousand generations since way back at the beginning. But it says that's how powerful, you know, God can make your life to be. If you just make a pebble splash, you know, for him. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405 447 4429 Our address is Post Office Box 720968 Norman, Oklahoma 73070 Our web address is www.lionlam.net. Thank you